I want to tell you a story this morning. But before I do that, I must warn you. You see, by now, some of you might have figured me out. You might have figured out the way I like to preach and give sermons. I start off with a funny and charming story. Then we get into scripture, and then I make my application points. It's a nice little formula. However, this morning, the story that I'm going to tell is neither charming nor funny. In fact, it's kind of a little depressing. My apologies. The story is about a woman named Elizabeth Targ. Elizabeth Targ was a noted doctor and a brilliant woman. She was the niece of Bobby Fischer, the chess master, and it was clear from an early age that Elizabeth did not fall far from the family tree. In 1995, she made history with a pilot study that investigated the power of prayer with AIDS patients. She found that the group that had people praying for them in a remote and intercessory manner had fewer health complications. Then, in 1998, she was given a $1.5 million grant, and in 98, that was a lot of money. <laughs> by the, she was given that grant by the National Institutes of Health to do a broader study. As the study was getting underway, she discovered that AIDS treatment had advanced so much in those three years that her study would be inconclusive. She chose instead to focus her study on glioblastoma multiform, a malignant brain tumor that American medicine often has no cure for. She began her study on the effects of prayer on patients with this deadly form of brain cancer, and the results were similar to that of her original pilot study, that the group being prayed for responded better to medical treatment. Elizabeth Targ was featured in Time magazine for her work. I mean, this was certainly a medical and scientific breakthrough. She had discovered that prayer healed cancer. Can I get an amen? And then, as it turned out, she herself was diagnosed with glioblastoma multiform. Hundreds, thousands, millions of people began praying for her. They prayed for her tumor to shrink. They prayed for her to be healed. They prayed for her to live. Despite all the prayers, the woman who discovered that prayer could cure cancer died of the very cancer she was studying, all while people prayed. We all have questions when it comes to faith. But this morning, we tackle the question. Because while we might have intellectual hang-ups on matters of doctrine and theology, we might struggle with how a dead man could come back to life or how a virgin could get pregnant, there is really only one question that causes a visceral reaction and rejection of God and faith. And that question, that visceral reaction, is lurking beneath our opening story this morning. If God is all-powerful, and just and loving. Why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does a scientist who proves that prayer can help heal cancer die of that same cancer? Why do children starve and die? Why aren't our loved ones protected? Why do the wicked prosper and not the faithful? This very question kept C.S. Lewis, St. Augustine, and countless others throughout history from embracing faith at a younger age, 
while we know that C.S. Lewis and St. Augustine eventually came around, how many others haven't? I submit to you that if there is one signpost on our quest, one fork in the road, one stumbling block that keeps people from faith, it's this one. This question, this problem is not alien to the Bible. In fact, this question is the central theme of one of the oldest stories in Scripture. While it can be found much more in the middle of your Bibles, scholars believe that the story and the book of Job is one of the oldest stories in Scripture. The story begins by giving us a snapshot of the title character. We're in the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, it is displayed on the screen behind me. It's in your lifeline. And if you need a Bible, we're giving them away for free out at our welcome table. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Now, there's a lot going on in these opening verses of the book of Job. First, we are told that Job is blameless and upright. Then we are told that Job is prosperous. These two statements are not independent of one another, and the author of the story is not just stating facts. Instead, the author is giving a nod to a moral theory common in ancient Jewish thought. The prevailing moral system in the Torah is that the righteous receive blessings and the wicked curses. Deuteronomy is one of the two books where we find the giving of the law code found in the Torah, And at the very end, after presenting all the laws, Scripture says, See that I have set before you the way of life and prosperity, death and destruction. Following the law will lead to life. Transgressing the law will lead to death. So when the book of Job begins with telling us that Job was blameless and upright, as well as prosperous, this moral construct is being introduced. Now, this is going to come into play as we go on, and it really serves as the foundation of our question today. So I want to spell out the logic. What is being presented here is the following logical progression. Proposition one, God is all-powerful. Therefore, everything that happens in the world happens because God wills it. Proposition two, God is just. Therefore, righteous people are rewarded and wicked people are punished. Proposition three, Job is righteous. Therefore, Job is prosperous. But the story goes even further. You see, under Torah, it was required that you made sacrifices to atone for your sins. Job takes this a step further. For when his sons and daughters throw themselves some parties, Job was concerned that maybe one of them during a party might have sinned. I know we know nothing about sinning at parties. So he performed sacrifices not only for himself and for his sins, but also for the sins of his sons and daughters 
for he wanted no ill to befall the people he loved. Sadly, this is not where the story stays for long. We would love for the story to stay here. We would love if, it were a sto- if, if this story was simply that Job was an upright and blameless man and that he prospered. And he continues to be upright and blameless and he continues to prosper. But sadly, that doesn't make for an interesting story. The story takes us up into the heavenly realm where God and Satan make a deal. The moral construct wherein the righteous are blessed and the wicked are cursed will be suspended. Harm will befall Job and his faith will be tested. We are then taken back to Job and his family where disaster strikes. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. In the next chapter... Job will be struck with boils over his body. His wife leaves him and his friends come to pastor him. Job was the original country song. The vast majority of the book of Job is Job insisting he is innocent while his friends accuse him of having done something to incur the wrath of God. The arguments go in cycles with Job saying he has done nothing to deserve this and each of his friends providing different variations on the theme that Job is clearly guilty of something. Finally, after over 30 chapters of this, Job shouts, enough. He then delivers a long monologue where he lists every possible sin there is. Seriously, every possible sin there is. And insists that he is not guilty. He then shouts to heaven the following challenge. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. I would present it to him as to a ruler. At this point, the story has reached its climax as we await God's response. To set the stage, let us return to our original logic problem. Proposition one, God is all-powerful. Therefore, everything that happens in the world happens because God wills it. Proposition two, God is just. 
Therefore, righteous people are rewarded and wicked people are punished. Proposition three, Job is righteous. Therefore, Job is prosperous. The story has problematized that logical progression because Job is no longer prosperous. Job's friends arrive at the conclusion that Job is not prosperous because Job is not righteous. He is guilty of some sin. Job insists he is innocent. According to this logical schema, that means Job is negating one of the first two propositions. And then God speaks. And when God speaks, it is out of a storm. And God lists all the things God has done in creating the world. God makes it very clear that he is all-powerful. And as God speaks, God speaks in such a way that it becomes clear that to question God on matters of justice is nonsensical. So we must clearly be left with option three. Job is guilty. Not so fast, my friends. When Job challenged God, he made it clear that God was to issue a formal indictment against Job. Job basically presents an ancient writ of habeas corpus, which means that the onus is on God to provide a charge against Job. And yet nowhere in God's speech does God accuse Job of any wrongdoing. All three of our logical propositions are proven true, and yet the conclusion still remains that Job is being punished. What are we to make of this strange story? At the end of the story, one thing is clear. We do not live in that mortal universe. God is all-powerful. God is just. And yet wicked people prosper and righteous people suffer. We have come a long way to wind up where we started. Except for one thing. This God who is just and all-powerful speaks to Job, reaches out to Job, is in relationship with Job. You see, most people who talk about bad things happening to good people as a way to reject religion do so on the basis that this proves that God is dispassionate, detached, removed, uncaring. That God is not worthy of being worshipped because God stands by and does nothing while injustice occurs. But from the very beginning of this story, God is not detached or dispassionate. God is intimately involved with the affairs of the world. God brags of Job's righteousness to Satan. And in order for God to brag about Job, God has to know about Job. God knows what is going on in this world. And God does not turn a blind eye to Job's suffering. God responds to Job when Job challenges God. God is there, watching, listening. God is with Job through pain and suffering. Now, this takes of the dispassionate and detached part, but we still have the challenge that God stands by and does nothing while injustice is taking place. To respond to that, we need to turn to the other time in the Bible when this issue is taken up. Turn with me to the ninth chapter of John. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Once again, there's a lot going on in a few short verses. In the first two verses, we are introduced to a man born blind from birth. The disciples say to Jesus, who sinned that he should be born blind? In asking that question, they're endorsing the moral universe.
there. Make us aware that in those moments when we don't understand that you are there. Aware that in those moments when we don't get why the world is the way that it is, you're with us. Have us take comfort in the fact that you know what it is to suffer, that you know exactly what it feels like to be the victim 